Deep in the History is independent and proudly listener-supported. Before we begin, I would like to thank my newest patrons and Spotify supporters who went to patreon.com slash deepinthehistory or subscribed directly on Spotify. Every cent I receive goes towards upgrading this experience we share. And hopefully, by the end of this year, it will be enough to sustain myself modestly and do nothing but research, write, and record. Thus, it gives me such hope to welcome Tyler, Pool Bus Driver, Brian, Tyrone, Theodore, Nicholas, Kelly, Adina, Jojo, Kathy, NS Viking, Gavin, and Brogan. My new historians, I salute you and thank you from the center of my being. I would like to extend a special welcome to Tiffany, who generously chose to support the show at an elevated level. So, Tiffany, your level of support for Deep in the History is peerless. Consider this a foreword. I was very sad to learn of the passing on to what comes next of the wonderful actor Ray Stevenson. You may know him as Titus Pullo from HBO's classic series Rome. If you haven't seen this show, it is the tale of the final death of the Republic, when Julius Caesar crosses the Rubicon, dooming his city, his people, to a colossal civil war that would end with the rise of the Empire. The series is seen largely through the eyes of two characters, Centurion Lucius Verinus and legionary Titus Pullo. They form an unlikely friendship that evolves into a brotherhood, and perhaps by the will of the gods, these strangers turned brothers are somehow always at the center of nearly every major historical turning point. In addition, through them we get to see what we never do, the life of plebs at the twilight of the Republic. After reading various tributes to Ray Stevenson and what his character meant to people across the world, it occurred to me that many viewers did not know that the beloved characters Verinus and Pullo were based on real people who were alive and serving in Caesar's legions at that time. They are mentioned together once in Caesar's commentaries on the Gallic War, an extreme rarity in that people of plebeian stock rarely make an appearance. Thus, as a tribute to one of my favorite actors and all-time favorite characters, I decided to bring you the true story of two centurions that inspired Saga. Consider that as we go forward. And with that said, this foreword comes to an end. This is Deep in the History, and I'm your host, Arjun Hundle. It is the year 54 before the Common Era. The Republic stands astride the Mediterranean world like the Colossus it is. The generation that survived the wars, the purges, the bloodbath that resulted from the rivalry of Marius versus Scylla are mature adults desperately trying to maintain the illusion that the structures, norms, and values that allowed the small town of Rome to become the preeminent power in their world are still strong and thriving. Still, the Republic of old, governed by the strictures of Mos Maiorum and the governing structure provided by the Cursus Honorum, when in fact the Republic is under the control of three men. Pompey Magnus, Rome's most famous general, Lucius Licinius Crassus, the richest man in their world, and at first serving as peacemaker between these two rivals for dominance, the junior partner, Julius Caesar. Together they form an alliance, aligning their factions of the Senate and through Caesar, the popular assemblies, to control all levers of power. 
However, in recent years, through his conquest of Gaul, modern France and the Low Countries, has made Caesar rich and powerful enough to become their equal. And at this moment, Proconsul Caesar is leading his second invasion of the Misty Isle Amilco the Navigator, legendary admiral of ancient Carthage, had written of Caesar's intent on the conquest of Britannia, a near-mythical place in the minds of his people, and if successful, threatens to make him the most powerful man in the Republic. It is a time of fanatical druids, mighty tribal kings, and Caesar's legions. It is a time of oligarchs, demagogues, and false populists. It is a time of conspiracy, rebellion, and the most poisonous of politics. It is a time of conquest, subjugation, unregulated ambition, and unlimited greed. Chaos, brought to order by the will of three men. It is the time of the triumvirate. And the illusion that the citizens of Rome live in a republic still holds. But all is not well. In August, while his legions are locked in a bloody struggle against the southern tribes of Britannia, Caesar receives devastating news. His daughter Julia, who he had married to Pompey Magnus to cement their alliance, had died in childbirth. Her baby survived her by mere days before passing on to what comes next. Julia, apple of her father's eye and beloved wife of Pompey Magnus gone forever, causing both men to experience utter anguish. And though hundreds of miles apart, the tragedy may have brought the two men closer in their grief. It was still a severe blow to the connection between them. Dear sweet Julia, Mortus, this, coupled with the recent passing of Caesar's mother, the universally admired Aurelia, meant that Julius had lost the two women closest to him in the world, and the grief began to consume him. Far away in Italy, Pompey withdrew from public life and secluded himself in his country estate to grieve his beloved. Marriages in Rome, particularly among the elite or political unions, meant to cement familial alliances in the power structure of the Republic. Love had nothing to do with it. In fact, it was a foreign concept to most married people. So much so that it had been seen as a feat for a man like Pompey Magnus to display the open love and adoration to Julia while she was alive. And if love was foreign, so too was the magnitude of the grief that the loss of one's love could cause. Thus, when the noblemen of Rome put forward the idea that Caesar should divorce his wife and marry Pompeia, Pompey's married daughter, who would also have to divorce, and in turn, that Pompey should marry Octavia, Caesar's niece, to reestablish their alliance. It came as a shock when it was rejected by both men. It was and has been interpreted as the first breach between them. And with the third triumvir, Crassus, away in Syria, raising legions and funds for his campaign against mighty Parthia, in Rome, whispers of conuratio, conspiracy, caused their followers to begin to exploit this perceived gap between Caesar and Pompey. South across the channel in Gaul, while Caesar's attention was elsewhere, the chieftains of many of the northern tribes allied to Rome, who had aided the legions in the recent conquest by supplying critically important food, auxiliary troops, and intelligence, were gathering at a secret meeting. What brought them together was a shared feeling that having so many legions stationed around Gaul 
on their lands was becoming a de facto occupation, which could easily lead to full annexation into a new Roman province, which individually they would be helpless to resist, but united the tribes could. Conuratio, conspiracy, was in the air abroad. At the secret meeting, not all the chieftains were convinced to rebel, but many were, because to them it was the perfect time to strike. With most of the lands of defeated tribes ravaged by the conquest, Caesar had been forced to separate his legions in Gaul into smaller elements, not only to garrison, but simply to access enough supplies to feed themselves through the coming winter, meaning their camps and outposts were relatively isolated and without reinforcements close at hand. At the end of the campaign season, Caesar crossed the channel with his army and returned to Gaul, where it immediately became apparent that all was not well when he learned that one of the chieftains he installed to rule a friendly tribe had been assassinated, a threat to his authority and changing the power dynamic in the north, removing a central thread in the web of his expertly employed strategy to divide and rule the people of Gaul. This coincided with rumors of political plots against the rule of the triumvirate in Rome, which required his immediate attention. In order to stabilize his nascent province, so that he could ride to northern Italy to consult with Pompey, though it was late in the year, with winter quickly approaching, Caesar was forced to reorganize his garrisons across the northwest, stretching them out further away from each other and in smaller elements, never realizing that to the northeast, a rebellion had begun. This is the tale of the appearance of two plebeian warriors in the annals of history dominated by Optimates the tale of a rivalry so vicious that it would cause an enemy army to stop in its tracks, the tale of two centurions who saved their legion from certain doom by saving each other, the saga of a younger son of an Optimate family that could have, should have been, what the elite of the late Republic produced best, a fail son, yet who would defy the odds and rise to become a hero of Caesar's legions. So take a deep breath, let it out slowly. Put some smoke in the air if you choose, and just let your mind flow to my voice as we go deep into the year 54 before the Common Era and meet the real Titus Pullo and Lucius Varinus. Welcome. Julius Caesar's commentaries on the Gallic Wars begins with this famous sentence. All Gaul is divided into three parts, in one of which the Belgae live, in another the Aquitanes, and in the third the Celts in their own language, but called the Gauls in ours. In the northeast of Gaul, covering the area between the English Channel, the west bank of the Rhine, and the northern bank of the River Seine, were the lands of the Belgae, a large and loose confederation of mostly Celtic peoples with a distinct culture, language, or dialect thereof, and customs that were heavily influenced by the Germanic tribes across the Rhine. Caesar describes them, quote, When I inquired of them, of what tribes were under arms, how powerful they were, and what they could do in war, I received the following information, that the greater part of the Belgae were sprung from the Germans, and having crossed the Rhine at an early period, they had settled there, on account of the fertility of the country, and had driven out the Gauls who inhabited those regions, and that they were the only people who in the memory of our fathers, when all Gaul was overrun, 
had prevented the Teutones and Cimbri from entering their territories, the effect of which was that from the recollection of those events, they assumed to themselves great authority and haughtiness in military matters. As we experienced in verses the curse of Apollo's gold and will in the ongoing saga, for the Belgae to stand against and repulse the titanic hordes of Cimbri and Teutones who wiped out Roman armies as if they had never existed was no mean feat. Greatly enhancing their reputation as warriors across the Celtic world, yet since they were not united as a nation, just three years before, in 57 before the Common Era, they had fallen before Caesar's legions. Using force and divide and rule diplomacy, Caesar had won the allegiance of some Belgic tribes at the expense of others who would not submit and watch them be destroyed. And thus, many of the larger allied tribes, hearing of the unrest in the rest of Gaul and seeing that the mighty legions were now spread out in seemingly remote garrisons, decided that they had had enough of the ruinous toll of supplying their occupiers with food, warriors to serve as auxiliaries, and in many cases their young as hostages for their good behavior. In the fall of 54 BCE, rebellion against Roman rule erupted among the tribes of the Belgae. Not under one leader, but rather each large rebellious tribe more or less acted on its own, drawing in the smaller tribes around them, causing a domino effect. The powerful Ambrones surrounded their occupiers, the newly reconstituted 14th Legion, along with five additional cohorts in their winter camp and attacked. But the Ambrones were unable to take the well-defended walls. A high chieftain among the besiegers, King Ambiorix, who until that moment had been considered an ally and friend of the Republic in good standing, a man vouched for by Caesar himself, approached the camp to speak to the two legates who shared command of the oversized 14th Legion. He informed them that a conspiracy was unfolding across their lands in the form of a massive uprising that had forced the Ambrones to attack them, because it was decided by the chieftains of all the Gallic tribes to attack every Roman position in every region on that day. The Ambrones had no choice, for if they did not participate, their neighbors would destroy them for their inaction. King Ambiorix, as friend of Rome, offered a truce that would allow the 14th to march away in peace so that they could go to the aid of the nearest legionary outpost some 50 miles away. The two legates debated, but in the end were moved by the king's words and agreed to leave. The 14th packed their supplies and marched. Their wooden camp set ablaze behind them so as to leave nothing for the enemy. Then while on the march, through the dense forest the Ambrones knew well, in an ambush akin to Boudicca's on the Ninth Legion that we experienced in Revenge of the Ice Queen, the massive tribe hidden by the trees waited until the legion was in a deep ravine and attacked the Romans from all sides. Trapped, the 14th was wiped out to the last man, delivering Julius Caesar his first major defeat, though he was as yet unaware of the rebellion at all. In the immediate aftermath of that slaughter, in the ravine called a Tuatuca. Laden with spoils that they had stripped from the dead Romans, most of the Ambrone warriors returned to their homes. But King Ambiorix, in reality an instigator of the Belgae rebellion, rode south to the neighboring Nervii tribe and informed them of the Ambrone's massive victory 
and encouraged the Nervii to attack the legions sent to garrison their land that had only recently arrived and had not yet completed the fortifications of their winter camp. The chieftains of the Nervii agreed and sent out the call to all their towns and villages for their warriors to assemble. Their target was the 11th legion. Its commander was Legate Quintus Cicero, the younger brother of the orator, prolific writer, and powerful senator Marcus Tullius Cicero, who we will meet in mere weeks in verses, Scipio's dream. We know much and more about young Quintus because many of the letters written between the brothers have survived, and from them we know that Legate Cicero did not enjoy life in the legions and was only serving for the virtus of his family and to maintain a relationship with Caesar while his brother was in Rome using his gifts to influence his powerful faction of the Senate. You see, young Quintus was a poet at heart and longed for the luxuries of his villa in Rome and those of his family's many vast country estates. The men of the 11th Legion had no idea that the 14th had been wiped out, and since the Nervii had been defeated by Caesar mere years before, losing thousands of warriors, it must have come as a complete shock when they saw a massive tribal army approaching their unfinished camp. It appears that most of the first inner wall was complete, with only a small section still under construction, which protected their dwellings and supplies. The site of the rectangular camp was placed on top of a slight rise in a wide clearing separating it from the surrounding forest. The construction of the normal ditches dug to create an outer earthwork where stakes would be placed in front of sentry towers connected by an outer wall had not even begun as they had only recently arrived on station. The men of the 11th Legion were taken completely by surprise when from the dense encircling woods a Nervii horde emerged tens of thousands of battle-hardened warriors, eager for revenge for their defeat, they as a member of a small Belgae tribal alliance had suffered at the hands of the Romans. Many of these warriors had fought in a desperate battle that had almost ended proconsul Julius Caesar's life and career. Yet the military genius had turned certain defeat into victory through his tactical brilliance. But this time the Nervii knew that Caesar was not in the camp, and without Caesar to lead them, the Romans were mere mortal men, as flawed and as prone to fear and mistakes as any. And seeing the relatively skeletal defenses of the unfinished camp, the Nervii knew vengeance was in their grasp. Then, their warriors advancing on the side of the camp where the wall was not yet complete saw their chance. Carnic's horns blared as they sounded the advance. Disciplined, not a kinetic, wild, and powerful charge across the battlefield. For after battling the legions, even in defeat, they had watched and learned from the Roman way of making war, as we shall see. On the unfinished side of the Roman war camp, in fact separated by the small gap in the wooden walls that had yet to be completed, atop their respective sides of the forming palisade stood two grizzled Roman centurions who despised one another. You see, since joining the legion, through their determination and skill in combat, they had quickly moved up the ranks, yet as they rose, with fewer and fewer senior ranks available to fill, they had battled each other for each promotion. Thus, because of their excellence, they in essence hindered one another's careers. And over the years, resentment turned to anger, anger to hate, and now the two most senior centurions of the 11th Legion were the only competition to become Primus Pilus, the first spear centurion of the Legion, 
Attaining this exalted rank assured a life of plenty because one's virtus was instantly recognized across the republic, outranking elected officials in small towns in times of emergency and being the first citizen leading festival parades, hailed and respected by all. The highest level of achievement most plebs could only dream of attaining. But for these two centurions, they could make that dream a reality. Both desperately wanted it. It was there for the taking. Their names were Centurion Titus Pullo and Centurion Lucius Verinus, who avoided looking at each other as they stared out across the clearing that was quickly filling with advancing Nervii warriors. And both men knew that the enemy were coming to exploit the gap in the wall that separated them. With no way to finish the construction, that gap was even now being barricaded with earth, rocks, and wood, but there was not enough time. The first line of Nervii warriors, seeing the gap into the enemy camp disappearing, being filled in by the makeshift barricade, unleashed a blood-curdling war cry and began to charge forward. Centurion Titus Polo picked up his pilum, his throwing spear, and grasped his scutum, the rounded rectangular shield that covered a legionary from shoulder to shin in his other hand, and stepped off the palisade into the gap, landing on the slowly rising pile that was being used to fill it in and moved to confront the charging barbarians. Pausing for only an instant to look back at the Romans on the walls and then directly at his hated rival and said, Why do you hesitate, Varinus? What better opportunity of showing your virtues do you seek? This very day shall decide all our disputes. Instantly enraged by his hated rival's words, Centurion Lucius Varinus did not hesitate. He moved, equipped himself, dropped into the gap, and followed. However, Titus Pullo had already rushed forward and was many yards ahead. Pullo, his scutum held before him, his pilum raised in his right hand, took aim at the huge Nervii warrior leading the charge. He sped up, adding his momentum, and launched it with all his might. It flew, taking the warrior in the chest and hurling him backwards to the ground. The Nervii charge faltered as warriors stopped to cover their wounded comrade with their shields, not realizing that he was already dead, and in answer unleashed a withering barrage of javelins at the lone centurion. Polo dropped to his knees and angled his shield to catch them, but the sheer force of the concentrated projectiles hammering into and through his scutum caused him to fall onto his back, and as the rain of javelins continued and finally ended, the ground around him was peppered, and the spears caught in his shield were quivering. To all the world, he appeared to be a dead man. The Nervii began to cautiously advance on the human pincushion that Titus Pullo had become, assuming he could not have possibly survived. With all warriors wishing to claim the transverse crested helm of a Roman centurion, a prize and symbol that would display their warrior prowess to their entire tribe, Yet just as the first Nervii were upon him, Lucius Varinus came barreling into them, stabbing out with his gladius and punching with the boss of his scutum. He slew the first enemy with such ease and ferocity that the group of warriors on either side drew back for an instant before realizing that this other centurion was alone, massively outnumbered, with no help coming from the Romans on the walls. The Nervii attempted to surround the centurion, but they couldn't. Lucius Varinus cut down one warrior, and then another, and smashed the next with the heavy boss of his scutum with bone-cracking force. 
then whirled to face the next, but lost his footing and slipped into a shallow ditch, alone on the ground, about to be surrounded. But what the Nervii did not realize was that Titus Pullo was not dead. The reason that their javelins lodged in his scutum, concealing his body, were quivering was that the miraculously uninjured Pullo was attempting to free himself. A few spear points had penetrated through his shield and into the ground, and one had lodged into his sword belt, which had prevented him from drawing his gladius, which he needed to cut himself free. While the Nervii were distracted by Varinus's savage assault, in that minute, Pullo had freed himself, drawn his gladius, and was already charging to his hated rival's aid, even as Varinus tripped and fell. Thus Pullo was able to surprise the Nervii and give Varinus the seconds he needed to get to his feet. With ever more tribal warriors eager to kill them, the two centurions fought together in a dais, back to back, and became a rotating whirlwind of death, leaving a trail of wounded and dying Nervii warriors behind them as they retreated step by step back to the wall of their camp. As the pair neared, ropes were thrown down to them by the watching legionaries on the wall, and their ever-growing number of pursuers were met by a hail of arrows and spears to keep them back. Exhausted and drenched in sweat, Pullo and Varinus took hold of their respective ropes and were pulled up to safety. They were met by cheers from the legionaries on the palisade. Not just for the ridiculously heroic battle the pair had waged on the Nervii, but the fact that their action had bought the men of the 11th Legion just enough time for the gap in the wall to be barricaded. Inside the camp, in his command tent, Legate Cicero was on the verge of finishing his fourth tragic play. So involved in his art that he was taken completely by surprise when he was informed of the tribal army that had appeared to besiege his legion. He immediately stopped dictating his masterpiece to his scribe and called for his slaves to help him equip his armor. He burst out of his command tent and ran to scale the wooden steps up to the palisade of the nearest wall. The young legate, who had never had any interest in rising up the Cursus Honorum, let alone serving in the legions, suddenly found himself surrounded by a nightmarish army of Nervii, a tribe that he had been told was completely pacified before arriving. Thus, when their legate, who had always been cold and disinterested, suddenly began shouting orders to his officers, there were a few seconds of disbelief before they snapped into action. Quintus Cicero, the spoiled and pampered younger brother, rose to the occasion. In order to survive, he had to defy the well-earned stereotype of the sons of the ruling class. It appears that though he had no interest in military matters, he was brilliant. Never dreaming he would ever have to apply it, he had absorbed the military history taught to him by former Greek scholars subjugated into slaves and bought at ruinous expense by his family, and all elite families, in the hopes that perhaps, just perhaps, if educated, their sons too could defy the stereotype, something akin to buying a lottery ticket for the ruling class of Rome. And in this case, well, prepare to witness his redemption, for Quintus Cicero would not allow himself to become known as a fail son of the late Republic. Ready? Then let's go. Even while his two most experienced and skilled centurions were fighting their two-man delaying action against the Nervii on their side of the camp, Legate Cicero was worn and took stock of the situation his legion found itself in. Their incomplete winter camp was surrounded by a huge tribal army, not just the Nervii, but warbands from smaller tribes. 
and even a large force of Ambrones led by King Ambiorix, whose words had helped spark the rebellion of the Belge. In his writings, Caesar put the number of warriors that formed the tribal horde emerging from the forests around the 11th legion at 60,000 warriors. This number seems to be inflated. But even if we reduce it by half, the 11th legion was outnumbered at least 4 to 1 by their besiegers. However, a disparity of 8 to 1 is not impossible. The 11th had brought with them their winter stores of grain, and with the established wells in their camp had ready access to fresh water. Thus, they could not be starved out. His men were well trained and led by experienced officers, veterans of the Gallic War. So young Legate Quintus need not worry about his men's ability to withstand the rather rudimentary siege tactics that he expected from the Nervii. However, as things stood, eventually their sheer numbers would tell because his besieged camp was incomplete. The crucial outer wall, along with ditches, stakes, and towers were non-existent, which meant that if the Nervii were able to create and exploit a single breach in the eleventh single wall long enough to get a few hundred warriors into the interior, the chaos they would create from within would mean the legion, forced to pull manpower from the walls, would be doomed from without. Therefore, the camp must be made as secure as possible. His legion had a large reserve of lumber that had been collected, cut, and kept for the outer wall. So Legate Cicero ordered the construction of 120 towers that would form an inner support ring, whose platforms would be taller than the palisade that lined the top of the existing wall, and be able to project rain fire in support of his defenders and beyond at any incoming enemy warbands. On the towers, he would place his archers, slingers, and war machines, such as his legion's complement of scorpions, bolt throwers, along with a small number of catapults. The legate allocated every legionary, lixi, and allied unit that he could spare to the task of erecting the inner ring. While keeping the palisades mostly manned and the four gates of his camp barricaded and guarded, because the Nervii and their allies outside the walls had them surrounded, they had the initiative able to launch assaults at any time from any side at will. And it came nearly as soon as the legate had given his orders. The ferocity of the first assault from every direction was vicious and brutal. Yet the men of his 11th legion held the walls and pushed the Nervii back, repulsing wave after wave. And finally, at nightfall, the tribe's assault relented as they needed to rest and see to their dead and wounded. Inside the camp, the legate dictated a letter and ordered a legionary scout to act as messenger to attempt to reach proconsul Caesar at his base camp at Samoa Breva, a hundred miles away, praying to the gods that his messenger could get through the not yet fully established siege lines. That night, legate Cicero did not rest. He tirelessly oversaw the construction of his support towers, even joining in himself where help was needed most. Dawn of the second day of the siege revealed that the messenger he had dispatched to Caesar had been caught by the Nervii. The legionary scout was brought before the walls of the camp in chains and tortured to death before the eyes of the 11th legion, immediately followed by another all-out assault on the camp. With the benefit of the extra firepower of the dozens of towers that had been built overnight, the attack was repulsed once again, but both sides were taking heavy casualties. The Nervii called for a parley and offered to allow the legion to march away peacefully, just as the Ambrones had offered the 14th legion before Atuatuca. 
The offer was delivered by none other than King Ambiorix himself, whose elite bodyguard bolstered every Nervii attack and were there to ensure that the rebellion had a second quick triumph to follow his ambush at Atuatuka. In his mind, the destruction of the 11th Legion would bring all the Belgia tribes into the rebellion and send his fame among his people into the stratosphere, and he would rally the tribes to become their leader, to become Ver Ambiorix, High King of the Belgae. To him, it was the only way to face Caesar, united as one people, with one purpose, under the will of one mind, against the most deadly foe they had ever faced. It was during this parlay that the legate learned of the annihilation of the 14th Legion and its additional five cohorts, the largest Roman force in the region. And though he was not aware of Ambiorix using the same trick to lure his legion out, only to be led into another carefully crafted ambush, young Quintus Cicero took a moment to consider the strategic situation. There was open rebellion. If his legion was under siege, then it stood to reason that the few remaining legionary outposts in the lands of the Belgae were as well. And since Caesar had sent no word, it was entirely possible, in fact likely, that the proconsul knew nothing of any of this, which meant his duty was to get word to Caesar of all that had transpired, and Vertus demanded that his eleventh fight and hold. His men's faith in the proconsul was near religious because every legionary knew in their hearts Caesar would not forsake them. However, given the forces arrayed against the eleventh, the legate would have to stand in Caesar's place until the proconsul came. Thus, in response to the offer, the legate replied that if the Nervii and their allies laid down their weapons and returned to their villages, he would argue their case to Caesar personally and implore him to grant them mercy. Ambiorix scoffed at this and the parley was over. But then something happened that had not occurred before and came as a complete shock to the Romans. From the walls of their camp, they witnessed that the Belgae way of making war had evolved. The Nervii had seen the siege tactics Caesar's legions had used to take hill forts and citadels of tribes in their lands in the previous years. And though far from experts, they copied the Roman siege tactics as best they could. Over the course of the next three hours, the Nervii and their allies set to constructing a Roman-style circumvallation of the 11th legion. The besiegers dug an encircling ditch and piled high the earth behind, upon which they built a containing wall of sharpened logs, along with gaps at regular intervals with towers and gates to allow infantry assaults on the camp. The Nervii then began constructing Roman assault towers, armored rolling staircases with a ramp at the top that could be dropped down onto the palisade and allow their army to climb up and pour into the Roman camp, exactly the way the legions had done to their people. Well, not exactly. Being new to the art of siegecraft, most of the assault towers did not work well, unable to be rolled forward, and lacked a metal layer of armor, instead covering them with cloth and leather hides making them extremely vulnerable to the legion's scorpions and catapults which the legate had placed on the new multitude of towers. The coming days saw many assaults on the walls of the camp by the Nervii, their warriors advancing behind Roman-style mantlets, large rolling shields that protected a warband grouped together behind them, using their towers and ladders to attempt to storm the camp, and hooked ropes to try to pull down the wooden wall. The tribes even used heated projectiles to fire over the wall to set the interior of the camp on fire. Most of the blazes were quickly put out, 
but this took legionaries away from the palisade, and with each new assault, ever more casualties were mounting. In desperation, using the cover of the night, every night, messengers were dispatched to break through the siege lines to reach Caesar, only to be sacrificed by Druids before the wall as the sun rose the next day, every day. Yet the men of the 11th Legion resisted and repulsed each attack. However, because they could not replace their losses, with no time for wounds to heal, most legionaries were fighting injured in at least a minor capacity by the seventh day of the siege. While the besiegers seemed to have a limitless supply of fresh warriors to replace those that had fallen, with fresh warbands continually arriving from the countryside, in battle, legged Cicero seemed to be everywhere at once, directing the defense, on the walls fighting, encouraging his men, and only taking rest when his officers forced him to do so. But their situation was becoming hopeless. Cut off by the siege, they could not hope to win a war of attrition. They just did not have the numbers. Then, a Gallic nobleman serving with the legion offered the legate the service of his slave, another Gaul, to act as messenger to Caesar. Legate Cicero looked at the man and had to admit that he would blend in far better than the poor Roman scouts he had been forced to use thus far. And being a native, the Gallic messenger was able to slip through the siege lines unnoticed at night and off into the forest. The only indication of his success was that he was not, in fact, executed before their walls the next morning before the Nervii assault began anew. Speas, hope. Elsewhere. Proconsul Julius Caesar, only recently returned from his second and last campaign in Britannia, was stationed at the central supply camp at Samoa Briva, modern Amiens in northeastern France. He held this central position in order to direct his legions spread across the north of Gaul and directly oversee the tribute and supplies from the tribes that would feed his legions during the winter and fuel them in the spring, the next campaign season. At that moment, it was imperative for him to go south to the province of Cisalpine Gaul in northern Italy for meetings with representatives of his fellow triumvirs Pompey and Crassus because the political fires in this very late stage of the late republic were many, constant, and had to be addressed. In fact, it was practically his winter ritual. But upon his return to the mainland, the unrest in northwest Gaul had kept him in place. As yet, as far as Caesar was concerned, the Belgae were pacified and loyal, for no ill news had reached him from the east. That is until Legate Cicero's messenger arrived, and Caesar read his letter and was utterly shocked. This was the first time that he became aware of the annihilation of the 14th Legion and its additional five cohorts at the massacre at Tuatuca. Worse for him personally, it had been executed at the hands of King Ambiorix, a man Caesar had vouched for. Beyond the disgrace of the defeat itself, if this revolt were not handled immediately, the blow to his reputation once news inevitably reached Rome and the subsequent loss of his virtues would drastically weaken his political position. With him at Samoa Briva, Caesar had just his bodyguard legion, the 10th, with nearly no auxiliaries. The years of campaigning to conquer Gaul had slowly but inevitably resulted in some of his legionaries dying in battle, being severely wounded, or succumbing to what we would consider simple illness during the cold months. The cost to his auxiliary allies that accompanied each legion had been even higher. Thus Caesar had broken them up and dispatched them to reinforce distant outposts for the winter. What had seemed the correct strategic move to maintain control of northwestern Gaul 
and now it left him badly situated to face what appeared to be a full-scale rebellion in the Northeast. Caesar considered the situation, not just in Gaul, but how he could maintain his political power in Rome. The massacre at Atuatuca was a horrendous loss, which his enemies in the Senate would use to discredit him. But, well, he could create a narrative that laid the responsibility for the disaster on the two legates he had left in command, for they were from families that had only recently achieved status, families that relied on his patronage for advancement, novus homo, new men, who were incompetent and inexperienced, a narrative the optimates would love, and his adoring public could not possibly blame him. After all, their invincible Caesar had not even known of the situation. But this narrative would only work if he saved legged Cicero's besieged 11th legion, thus maintaining good relations and indeed earning the gratitude of his eldest brother, Marcus Tullius Cicero, the Senate's most admired orator with a small but powerful faction of his own. And for his army spread across Gaul, the impact of the tragedy at Atuatuca would be lessened vastly, for in saving the brave men of the 11th legion, who withstood every assault against a possible odds, it would reinforce the message that Caesar would not forsake any of them if their commanders made sure that he were aware of their peril. The first frost had arrived. Winter was coming, making a full-scale campaign to crush the Belgae impossible. He would have to move with whatever forces lay near at hand in a daring mission to rescue the 11th and his reputation. First, he ordered that Cicero's messenger be cared for and rewarded. Then he dictated and dispatched five letters, first to the most loyal of his local Gallic chieftains, ordering them to dispatch all available cavalry they had on hand to Samoa Briva. The other three letters went to his nearest legates, each one a minimum of 25 miles away. This was necessary because Caesar could not just march with his bodyguard legion. You see, along with being the chief supply dump for his entire army for the next summer of campaigning, his massive wooden fortress also contained hundreds of hostages. The children of the tribal nobility of Gaul and Britannia that he had conquered or had submitted to him in the previous years, taken to be educated in Roman ways, and of course to ensure that their families would never dream of revolting. If these hostages were freed in his absence, it would ensure that the Belgae rebellion would spread across Gaul. In addition, crucially, Samoa Briva held all of the massive support and administrative staff, not only for his legions, but for the nascent province he was trying to create. The loss of this critical base, the backbone of his logistics, could not be allowed, for if it fell, everything, every advantage his tactical and strategic genius that the men of his legions had fought, bled, and died to achieve would be shattered, after which his enemies in the Senate would revoke his imperium, his legal right to command legions, making the military campaign of redemption and vengeance he was dreaming of for the next spring and summer impossible, dooming him to certain exile or worse, allowing the litany of court cases against him for his debts to proceed absent his power. It was an all-or-nothing situation, and as he always did after considering and calculating, just as he would before crossing the Rubicon in the future, Caesar made an epic roll of the dice. Caesar tasked the legion he had with him, his most loyal and elite killers, his bodyguard legion, the Tenth, who we invaded the mythical Isle of Albion with in Revenge of the Ice Queen behind. 
He knew they would die to the last man before allowing Samo Abriva to fall. Word soon reached him that two of the legions he had contacted would join him on the march. The third could not move, as just a day's march away from their winter camp, a tribal army was lurking in the wilderness. Though not yet in revolt, this tribe was clearly testing Roman resolve, and Caesar ordered them to stay in place. As requested, his local allied tribes sent him approximately 400 heavy cavalry, and as soon as they arrived, Caesar rode to save the 11th legion. Within two days, he was met by his other two depleted legions, bringing his total strength to barely 7,000, against a force that outnumbered his by at least four to one, though the odds may have been much worse. The pace of the march was merciless, covering as much distance as possible, an effort made easier since the paths for Roman roads had already been cut through the forest in the previous year's conquest. As his army entered the region, Caesar's scouts captured Nervii warriors, most likely those who were injured during the siege and were returning to their villages, and these were put to the question. From them, he learned that the situation at the camp of the 11th Legion was dire. The besieged legionaries had been repelling daily and nightly assaults on different parts of the walls, along with many full-scale attacks from all sides. He also learned of the evolution of the Belgae way of making war by copying Roman siege tactics and that thus far the assault towers they had built had failed to roll forward properly or had been brought down by concentrated artillery fire from the defenders on the walls. However, the Nervii would surely be learning from their mistakes, and if even one of the gigantic rolling staircases reached the walls, the eleventh would be overwhelmed. Caesar then wrote a short message, which he dispatched with the native Gaul who he trusted, with orders to ride to the besieged legion blend in with a Nervii assault on the walls, and hurl a spear with the message wrapped around it into the camp. A dangerous mission. So in case the clandestine messenger was killed, captured, or the letter found by the Nervii, it was written in Greek, because he believed that this far north, few if any of the Belgae would be able to read that language. Then, his relief army pressed on. As it turned out, his messenger did reach the siege lines and incredibly did blend in with the Nervii assault on the walls. However, when he hurled his spear, while it did go over the walls, it did not reach the interior of the camp, but rather became lodged in one of the hastily constructed towers that the legate had ordered raised for his artillery. Thus it was two days later that someone noticed a strange package wrapped around the spear and removed it to investigate. Once discovered, the message was taken to the legate immediately. Cicero called for a parade assembly of his battered legion. Nine out of every ten men of the eleventh were wounded, all with armor, scutum, and gladii damaged. Projectiles for his artillery and archers were perilously low. His exhausted legion was on the brink of being unable to continue the fight, and until the moment he read Caesar's message, the young legate was himself on the edge of despair. But Caesar's words had given him spas, hope, which he now gave to his men as he read aloud the words, first in Greek and then in Latin. The message said, Resist. Caesar is coming. Before the men of the 11th could even raise a cheer, sentries on the wall shouted a warning and pointed to the western horizon. The legate ran to the palisades and looked out to see that on the horizon were many rising plumes of black smoke which could only have been coming from the burning villages of the Nervii that lay in that direction. 
Cicero turned back to the assembly and shouted, Caesar is coming, and waved for the men to join him on the walls. Once there, the legionaries let out a cry of relief, for even as they saw the plumes of smoke growing into gigantic columns, the Nervii cavalry rode off to investigate. And within hours, the Nervii and their allies were marching towards Caesar and his legions, abandoning the siege and leaving the 11th free for the first time in weeks. The sheer number of tribal warriors headed in the proconsul's direction had the legate worried, so he called upon his faithful Gallic nobleman to provide another messenger who could blend in and reach Caesar with a dire warning of the approaching horde. The messenger reached Caesar's camp at midnight with legate Cicero's detailed description of the Nervii, their allies, and order of battle. Caesar reports the number of warriors in the approaching horde at 60,000, but it was more likely half that. Even so, leaving his army of 7,000 badly outnumbered, having lost the element of surprise, with no established supply chain for this emergency relief effort, and with only enough supplies of food for very limited maneuvers, he could not expect help from the formerly besieged 11th as the legion was brutally battered, in no shape to march, and barely combat effective. Always a believer in giving his legionaries bad news immediately, he called an assembly in the pitch black of night. He informed his men of the size of the army that they would be facing, the odds stacked against him. Then he let out a wicked chuckle and confidently told his men to rest, sleep in, and that the next day's march would be short. The men laughed, all crack veterans of the Gallic Wars, the most elite warriors of the very late Republic, men he had commanded to victory after victory, fought with, bled with, men who knew they need not fear any odds because Caesar was with them. Until this point, during the relief army's rush to reach the 11th Legion, with the days in northern Gaul becoming shorter and shorter as winter approached, they had been breaking camp and were on the march before sunrise each day. Thus, not only was the extra sleep welcome, it also conveyed Caesar's confidence in victory. In fact, the next morning, Caesar kept his promise, for his legions only had to march four miles before they came to a river valley. In your mind, picture a V-shape with a slow river flowing at the base and two narrow but flat, lightly forested plains at the tops. Before the terrain became visible, Caesar's scouts reported that the Nervii horde was arrayed for battle on the opposite side of the valley. Tens of thousands of warriors would survive relentless assaults on the walls at the siege of the 11th Legion, along with at least 2,000 Belgic cavalry of dubious quality, but numbers have a quality of their own. In addition, the fact that they understood Roman tactics, not only from the siege, but in recent years when they had first been conquered had to be factored in. However, Caesar had learned his enemy's tactics as well. The Nervii were presenting a battle line holding the opposite ridge in hopes that he would order his legions to march down, cross the river, and attack uphill at them. The tribal way of the Belgae to offer battle to an invader. Honorable, yet forcing an opponent to attack from the weakest possible position. An offer of battle Caesar himself had often accepted when his legions, though always outnumbered, were at full strength. Here, now, he had no support troops apart from his few hundred Gallic cavalry, and two legions absent their companion alas, and both barely above half strength, giving him approximately 6,600 elite heavy infantry, perhaps the finest Rome ever produced, 
along with a single support element of just 400 Gallic Heavy Cavalry. Taking every detail into account, he devised his battle plan and then explained it to his men in detail. Using the cover of the woods to hide his true numbers, Caesar ordered a camp to be constructed on their side of the valley. He arrayed his cavalry in a line along the top of the ridge in challenge. Behind them, a surrounding ditch was dug first, and wooden walls with just a few towers raised. Built to Caesar's exact specifications as a thin rectangle, with two gates facing the enemy. The camp was so small, in fact, that there was no room within to pitch tents, or in fact anything other than his 6,600 legionaries to sit down side by side to sleep, thus making the camp appear to the Nervii across the valley look like the relief force was no more than 2,000 legionaries, with a paltry escort of cavalry compared to the might of their vast horde. The day passed. No attack came. Overnight, his legionaries covered the two gates with a thin layer of mud and soil, so that it would look like the Romans had sealed themselves into their fortifications because they were terrified of being so vastly outnumbered. The palisades were fully manned, making it look as if the Romans were preparing to be besieged. With his trap set, the following morning Caesar ordered his cavalry down the valley to attack the Nervii, who countered with an assault of their own. Yet after a brief skirmish with the enemy horsemen, Caesar's cavalry retreated in fear, seemingly en route, and rode past the camp. Seeing this, the enemy cavalry followed them past the Roman camp into the woods, and the chieftains of the Nervii could not prevent their warriors first cheering with glee and then roaring for a fight from charging down from their position to attack the cowardly Romans. All doubt or wariness left the Nervii commanders when the first elements of their charging horde reached the ridge on the far side of the valley. When they witnessed the legionaries on the palisades of the camp run and disappear into the interior with cries of panic. The ditch around the camp was deep and would need to be filled in to assault the walls, especially since the Romans had fortified the gates with what looked like a solid wall of earth and stone. Soon thousands of Nervii warriors began dropping their weapons and shields to refill the ditches, winded from their charge first down and then up the valley. Others began to pull down what looked like deep layers of earth covering the two visible gates. While this was happening, the Nervii chieftains sent forward a herald, who proclaimed that any Romans who defected would live as free men, but any who resisted would be slain to the last man. The proclamation was met with an eerie silence. Inside the camp, Caesar gave the order. His legions were fully armed and ready. The gates, which at a distance had appeared to be covered with tons of earth, were in fact only covered by a thin layer, which fell apart when the gates were pulled open. And out poured Caesar's enraged legionaries, not just from the two visible gates, but from the other sides of the thin rectangle. They fell upon the stunned enemy. The legions began to slaughter all those thousands who were attempting to fill in the ditch. And from the thought-to-be-empty palisades came a deadly rain of pilum and projectiles from legionaries that had been crouching down, hidden from the enemy, just out of sight. The surprise was complete. The trap sprung. And just as the rest of the Nervii warriors who were coming up the slope of the valley to the ridge engaged the line of legionaries that emerged from the two visible gates, they were assaulted on their flanks by legionaries who had emerged from the others. The panic that the Nervii had thought they had spread to the Romans now inflicted their attacking horde. 
and soon warband by warband, subtribe by subtribe, they broke and fled. Caesar allowed his legions to pursue only a short distance, for fear that if they followed the enemy too far, they could become victims of ambushes in the woods on the other side of the valley. But it mattered not, it was an utter rout. The Nervii, whose villages were even now nothing but plumes of black smoke, only wished to return and find their families if they could. Their allied tribes had no wish to continue fighting after weeks of relentless and costly assaults on the 11th Legion. The enemy horde disintegrated, with thousands of warriors fleeing in different directions. For his immediate purpose, scattering the Nervii army was more than enough. Julius Caesar had just delivered them a brutal defeat, his first act of vengeance on the Belgae for their rebellion. It was not yet midday, so the relief force formed up and marched to the camp of the 11th Legion. Once on the scene, Caesar saw with his own eyes the Roman-style siege works that the Nervii had constructed, and was alarmed at the sophistication of the circumvallation and how close some of the assault towers had come to reaching the walls. Once inside the camp, Caesar personally congratulated Legate Cicero, his officers, and ordered the 11th Legion to rest and tend their wounds, while his relief force took over the defenses and saw to repairing the damage to the walls. The next morning, Caesar called for a parade assembly of the 11th. He commended the legion for its bravery and vowed that he would not shave until he avenged the ambush at Atuatuca and the terrible siege they had just suffered. He praised the leadership of Legate Cicero and promised that accommodations, medals for bravery, and bonuses in denarii would be theirs once they marched back to Samoa Briva. Anxious to get back to his winter supply dump and headquarters, all three legions marched back as soon as the wounded had been tended to and those that could not walk readied for transport. Proconsul Caesar now understood the full scope of the Belgae Rebellion and exactly which tribes would need to be annihilated. Winter was nearly upon them. He had to spend it organizing and planning his campaign of vengeance against the Belgae. When he reached his headquarters, he wrote a letter to his fellow triumvir and once son-in-law Pompey Magnus informing him of the massacre at Atuatuca and his rescue of the 11th Legion, and asking that he commend the virtus exhibited by Legate Cicero before the entire Senate. Then he asked that Pompey send him reinforcements, as the nascent legions Caesar had ordered created in the province of Cisalpine Gaul were barely at half-strength, untrained, and lacked companion Allah. Pompey obliged by sending two of his own veteran legions from Spain. This correspondence gives us much insight into the politics in Rome under the Triumvirate in the twilight of the Republic, as well as their personal relationships. The ambush at Tuatuca, not just an ambush, but one orchestrated by allied leaders that prominent Romans had vouched for, would call into the public consciousness the question of how these leaders had earned their trust, becoming friends of the Republic a title that should require exhibited loyalty for a long period of time. Was it utility? Bribes? Convenience? Bribes? Military necessity? Bribes? Understand the scale of the betrayal by King Ambiorix would not be replicated until the famous annihilation of three legions in the Teutoburg Forest in Nine Common Era. A disaster by any metric and could easily have been used to destroy Julius Caesar in the Senate and importantly shattered the aura of invincibility that entranced the people of Rome. 
However, the two triumvirs, still clearly friends, perhaps brought even closer together by the death of their beloved Julia, trusted each other enough that Caesar knew Pompey would reveal it gently, casting it as an act of treachery by King Ambiorix, an ally of Rome, and the traitorous Belgae as a whole, rather than an error on Caesar's part. And brilliantly, if their political enemies chose to exploit the defeat, the blame could be laid at the feet of the two legates in charge at Atuatuca. After all, Caesar was not there and had no knowledge of the situation. Given Caesar's popularity, an easy rhetorical sell for his old friend, and as a proverbial carrot, a gift, the ode of Vertus that Pompey would proclaim for legate Cicero would bring his elder brother's faction closer to the triumvirate as a whole, but to Pompey in particular, because he would be the one elevating Cicero's family before the entire Senate of Rome. His reputation saved, disaster averted, Caesar planned his campaign of vengeance against the Belgae as a whole. He would bring his now ten legions together into a fist that he would use to utterly crush the entire region once and for all in the coming spring. As for centurions Titus Pullo and Lucius Verinus, it turns out that Caesar, Legate Cicero, and the men of the 11th legion hailed them both as paragons of virtues. However, since neither man was given one iota of credit more than the other, their stalemate as to who would become Primus Pilum, first spear centurion of the legion, resumed. Here, Lucius Verinus disappears from history, but Titus Pullo will return during the coming Roman Civil War. But that is a tale for another day. Thank you for listening to Deep Into History. Please tell everyone you know about this show. You can support my art by going to patreon.com slash deepintohistory or directly on Spotify. And please take a moment to review the show wherever you listen. You can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and Blue Sky at Deep Into History to get your daily blast from the past, as well as maps, links, and visuals for every tale. And as always, my dear friend, take care of yourself. I truly look forward to the next time we go deep.